0: Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Greetings, I'm Scott Postman. I'm joined by Joffrey Swader, academic advisor, and Joffrey, good morning.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here. We're going to be talking about some pretty spicy stuff on the
0: education front. Spicy. Well, last week we talked a little bit about Um, Some of the turmoil, maybe we could call it turmoil, Mm -hmm. in the public sphere uh, regarding education, and we looked at one uh, philosopher and uh, political uh, pundit's view of education uh, as public education not being uh, really... Um, constitutional. That was the right. position. And so we interacted with some of the claims and some of the arguments going on there. But this week, as you said, we're going to turn up the heat a little bit and it's going to get a little bit spicy because we're going to talk about a book that has uh, come out recently. And uh, Jack Snyder, Dr. Jack Snyder, is a historian on public education and he's written a book titled the wolf at the schoolhouse door.
1: He's very much an advocate for government education. And so the the wolf in this case, well, it's, it's you, it's me.
0: All of you homeschooling families who want to take possession of your God given right to raise your children.
1: Right. (laughs) You are a wolf. And that, that being said though, he actually, (laughs) he he brings up some stuff that I I think that we who are against government education have to confront and have to confront honestly. So check this out y'all. Uh, Schneider wrote an article for the Washington Post tagline, democracy dies in darkness. I I always (laughs) love that when I see something ridiculous from the Washington Post. The headline of that article was parents claim they have the right to shape their kids school curriculum. They don't. So we read the article and guess what Scott did as soon as he read it? He went out and he bought Schneider's book. book yeah.
0: <laughs> I had to <laughs> I needed to get into this a little deeper and, and see where he's coming from. And so what we're gonna do today is uh, just listen to an audiobook version of A Wolf at the schoolhouse door and we're gonna just listen to the introduction. Yeah. And we're gonna play it. And now Joffrey has not yet <laughs> listened to any of this. And so but but we got put it on audiobook here so that we can play it. And, and you can listen to what is being said, there'll be a narrator reading it, and then we're going to interact with it. And, uh, but Joffrey's going to be hearing this for the very first time. Just like you guys. Yeah. So you're going to, you know, you're going to get a a little bit of a reaction. Now, before we dive into it, I I do want to mention the idea of a wolf. Um, Mm. so, you know, that we moved out about a year ago outside of town Uh and what's really interesting is just about every night we hear the coyotes and they, and they, they're, Pretty cool, I mean they come right down to the yard, you can hear them yipping and howling back and forth, but about every three weeks, the wolves show up. oh wow, and there is a distinct difference between the coyotes all shut down. they quit howling you don't hear the coyotes, but the wolves and they're piercing and they are ominous and they are frightening. yeah I mean it really there's something so the fact that he uses this idea of a wolf is what kind it's, of caught my it attention. It says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's very serious about the fact that um, you're a threat, a serious, you're not just a yapping coyote, right. uh, a serious threat. So yeah, let's dive in and listen to it. And uh, I'll kind of pause. Probably I'll follow your facial expressions <laughs> <laughs> okay, <perfect. laughs> and, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll
2: work through this together and, and we'll comment on it. Here we go. When secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, was asked in an interview whether she saw the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity to advance the cause of private school choice, she responded without hesitation, Yes, absolutely. As schools across the country confronted the crisis and its unprecedented financial consequences, DeVos remained single-mindedly focused on the agenda that made her Donald Trump's most controversial cabinet pick. In the weeks after schools shut down, DeVos encouraged states to use federal funds to help parents pay private school tuition. And demanded that school districts share millions of aid dollars with wealthy private schools. Initially, DeVos.
0: Okay, I'm going to stop right there yeah. for just a second. <laughs> so the right out the door, you know, this is politically charged. Oh, yeah. Right.
1: Coronavirus Trump's choice
0: most controversial choice captain member. So I just want to point that out. So education, you know, the person he puts in charge is the most controversial.
1: I've got to say that like just commenting on, on uh, his choice of the word controversial there, of course, people are going to have their agendas. That's why they write books and it's fine to have an agenda. Um, But in, in just skimming over the book uh, before the podcast, there were several times just in skimming that I found equivocation. Oh, You know, he would early in the paragraph use one term and then later in the paragraph use another term to talk about the same thing, thereby leading the reader to, you know, to come along with him without doing the work of arguing.
0: You know what might be a fun task for our listeners, especially if if you are a Kepler student and listening to this and you've taken rhetoric, listen for the number of fallacies. It's
2: unbelievable.
0: Just in this introduction. Oh, yeah. I'm just, I'm blown away. (laughs) So here we go
2: was treated as more of a joke than a threat, an impression solidified by a series of clumsy media appearances. Yet, DeVos was no political naive. Upon taking office, she immediately made clear her disinterest in public schools, though they are attended by the vast majority of American children, using her policy perch to advocate for breaking up what she derisively calls the system.
1: So, I mean, here what we have is uh, the defense for government schools is fundamentally based it seems to me throughout the book i didn't look at the introduction at yeah. all but on the fact that lots of people use the system oh yeah it's not a matter of principle well we, it, we don't have to talk about this principle should the government even be educating that, that doesn't matter what matters to jack schneider is lots of people use it
0: well and and even further his entire contention or or the threat that's against this assumed norm Um, is only going to start back with uh, Friedman, uh, the uh, economist, and and back to um, uh, Reagan years and stuff like that. So he doesn't hardly look, other than a few hints, he doesn't even look beyond that, like this is the established norm and everybody since then that are conservative are pushing back against the norm.
1: Yeah, which really is what arguments for government school end up being based on is just it's this way now yeah. so let, let's not question it yeah it's right? not the
0: it it's the it you know is versus the yacht yeah right exactly it, and it is this way so it should be that way but yes you're right it's it's based on the fact that most people use it
1: yeah and now oh, it's interesting to know that schneider schneider says that DeVos was not a political naive because it's it's important uh that there be uh, a little bit of the sinister that there be a plan, a conspiracy that there actually be a, a wolf. wolf yes. Right. So he wants everyone to take, take this, this, these attacks seriously. So although I'm speaking disparagingly of DeVos, no political knife.
0: No, no, not at all. Bec- even though that clumsy appearance was just more
2: probably of
1: right. Propaganda.
2: Close observers have been struck by DeVos's radical agenda. But as we argue in this book, the agenda the is not hers alone. While DeVos has been the most prominent public face of the recent push to dismantle public education, she is not its architect. The movement has been steadily gaining power and notching progress for decades, building financial support, erecting a policy infrastructure, and constructing a finely honed public message. In recent years, bestsellers like Dark Money by journalist Jane Mayer and Democracy in Chains by historian Nancy McLean have examined efforts by the radical right to fundamentally alter the American political system. Yet, these works have largely overlooked public education in their accounts. The billionaires populating the pages of these books, the Bradleys, the DeVosses, the Kochs, have long been fixated upon the nation's system of public schools and have slowly laid the groundwork for its unraveling. Now, in our post-
1: why on earth would you be focused on the nation's <laughs> government education system? It's not like it's a big deal.
0: They're bored. They don't have anything else. Right. So they're billionaires. <laughs> so let's pick something apart. You
1: know, so <laughs> we, we, we when we're talking about the education of our children, the yeah. formation of our children, we're talking about one of the most important aspects of any society. Why should it surprise you? That people care, right? Right. Yep. There's this suggestion in how Schneider is writing that this conspiracy against them is radical unbecoming. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when maybe it's just that people care. Right. Maybe they recognize how important education is and they want to have some opinions about it and they want to do some work over it.
0: But if you
2: don't share my opinion, then you're radical. Right,
1: exactly. Because <laughs> you know, things are already the way they are. Why would you mess with it?
2: Citizens United era, conservative elites are increasingly able to translate their animus against public education into state-level That's policy. Another
1: constant theme is when the elites. Koch Network
2: held its annual retreat in 2018 at a resort outside of Palm Springs, the 700 attendees, among the richest people in America, were instructed to go all in on efforts to transform the education system. We can change the trajectory of the country, Charles Koch told donors during a cocktail reception. Among the network's priorities. Replacing brick and mortar schools with a voucher program that would allow parents to purchase education products for their children in an Amazon like marketplace. That K 12.
1: I think it, it bears mentioning now that the article that got us started on this Deck Schneider shtick um, was Parents Claim They Have the Right to Shape Their Kids' School Curriculum. They Don't. Right. That was the headline, that was the title of, of the article. And so that's just embedded in all of this just the assumption that only the experts get to talk about what education should look like. And not only are the elites sinisterly trying to mess with this, but they're daring to try to give the parents more power. Outrageous.
0: Now, everything you just said is fundamental to what we're talking about, and it's very important. But what I would really be interested in, is hearing you say Jack Schneider stick ten times real fast. <laughs>
1: not going to happen, brother. <laughs> I'm amazed I pulled it off once.
2: <laughs> that was great. Well, education is in the sights of conservative plutocrats shouldn't come as a surprise. Mm.
1: <laughs> so many loaded terms, Public schools Man.
2: are the biggest ticket item in many state budgets, making them a prime target for anti-tax crusaders. Then there's the fact that the country's teaching for
1: Okay. You can't help yourself, can
2: can't. you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. the The, fir- the first time I, I was going through this, I, you know, uh, that's why I wanted you to hear it for the first time. But okay, so. Why are they crusaders? Why, you know, we're we're targeting what they're targeting the biggest budget item in in the, the budget in state budget because there's nothing better to do because there's nothing wrong with the system and it's all working great. And so why are we attacking it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, 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 there's the it, it, it's, it's con- yeah, plutocrats was used in there. It, there's a constant use of loaded terms here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it, as you mentioned, you know, it's f- full of la- logical fallacies. The way Schneider is writing. I mean, I, I would be interested to read a book of his where he actually takes it seriously. Well, this he, is all just emotionally loaded, getting people on his side, on side.
0: Yeah, this and this is just the introduction. So we only have time for the introduction. You get into the chapters. Oh man, and it, and it is just—it's unbelievable. And and he's an academic. He's a historian uh, of public policy and public education, and yet. He doesn't write in any way like an academic. This is supposed to be, well, I, I know this is geared toward um, the populace, Popular, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's supposed to be an academic, academically accurate you know, work. And, right.
1: And you can't be accurate if you're full of equivocation right. and loaded terms. Yeah.
2: Of course, some three million strong remains overwhelmingly unionized, the single largest body of union members in the country. But there is something more fundamental at stake here beyond just an ideological commitment to small government or a deep-seated loathing of unions. As political economist Gordon Lafer notes, education is the one remaining public good to which most Americans still believe we are entitled to by right of citizenship. Back to the future.
1: Okay, so yeah, (laughs) Uh, as I was scanning through uh, the book, um... On, on page 34, I made a note of, uh, of an equivocation. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's, I thought, well, maybe there'll be a chance to bring it up. Here's a chance to bring it up. And it's the same equivocation as here in, 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 in the introduction. So he starts talking about how public education is one of the few government services, we'll say, um, that all Americans benefit from. Right. And then he says all Americans have. Access to it, yep. right? Uh, yeah, it, it's actually in the, the, the other order. So basically, all Americans can access it. They'll have to pay for it, of course, but all Americans can access it. And then he just goes straight from there to all Americans benefit from it, right? Yeah, as if there were no difference.
0: Well, yes, he he does that exactly. And later on in the book, so this is not a part we're going to bring up, but he later on. He talks about the fact that one of the rising reasons for the rising cost is because of special education meal programs and these various things, Uh, and and that this is fundamental to uh, a a national civic citizenry uh, that where everybody benefits. This isn't like Medicare Medicaid for elderly people. This is for everybody. Yes, and yeah.
1: yeah, and and there's there's definitely,
0: oh man.
1: You know, if there weren't so many pieces of media going, I wouldn't mind that I forgot what I was going to say, but I'm going to pass it back to you. Okay. No, nope. you know, try to. Get back. To
0: <laughs> well, the, you know, and what's, what's difficult about this um, is the fact that there are so many things that we could unpack. We could just take one thing and we could have unpacked for the entire episode. Right. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff here. Let's, let's listen on and, um, and we'll see tons more of the equivocation, uh, fallacy, the red herrings. Uh, I mean, Tons of them, so.
2: This book began in response to a puzzling question: Why had conservative policy ideas, hatched decades ago and once languishing due to a lack of public and political support, suddenly roared back to life in the last five or so?
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I, in, if uh, hold your thought for one, or if you if you got that thought back, but but think about this for a second. This whole book, his whole enterprise, is framed in the idea that this only started about. 60, 70 years ago, right. and then there was a lull, and then now it's been kind of revived. And,
1: and that, that touches on, on what I was going to say, which is that you know, by, by suggesting that the benefit from public education is universal mm-hmm. uh, and that access is close to universal, he's doing the same thing that actually kind of happened with, with the COVID vaccine stuff. Yes. He is otherfying those who disagree with him, right. he's even suggesting that they're un-American. Right? Sure. Un-Americans believe these things, and so the un-American oppose us.
0: Yeah, and he's actually even going to take it a step further. And there's a couple of times where there's an implication that it's almost inhumane that we don't um, support families who can't take care of their children because of you know whatever financial their poverty there, um, and and he's also going to root it the race card will be pulled out here shortly, mm-hmm. but he's also going to root it in the fact that with the civil rights movement, this is where it started to try to get segregated education and private education, which he totally misses the boat here. But if you root it, if you root your argument there, then you're going to foster a lot of sympathy and, yeah. and a lot of agreement, you know, for, you know, these racist, uh, almost inhumane, un-American people who want to stop public education.
1: Right. You know, and, and alas, that, this guy couldn't write a book that just took on the arguments seriously and <laughs> did what it could to destroy them. Instead, just loading up the terms, just going ahead and painting a propaganda picture, yep. and and starting from that base.
0: Well, and the thing dishonest, he, yeah. Well, he doesn't ever answer the question entirely. I mean, he makes a few suggestions, but why? You said it earlier. Um, people care, so they're saying something. They're sta- they're standing up. But he keeps asking the question: Why are they attacking it? Why don't they? It's all in the name of small government. It's all in the right. name of a ideologue, you know, a group of of. There's an, there's an assumption.
1: There's an assumption in in the way he thinks that the state should be taking care of all yes. basics, right? Yep. Uh, but you know, there's I, I do think that this raises a question for the community of those who fight against government education. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that question is why are so many conservatives supportive of public education and of government teachers? I mean, there, he, he, when he argues later in the book about what, you know where funding comes from, how all, most of the funding for the government schools actually comes from the state and local level. Right. When we pay our property taxes, that's going in into the government schools. He also mentions that you know when teachers have gone on strike. Very often, conservatives support the teachers, right? There's almost like a knee jerk reaction, right. the same way conservatives might, might, might in a knee jerk fashion, support various causes they support teachers because because they're teachers right right well
0: it's the same thing with with our servicemen and women yes i'm a veteran and and so you play off the sympathy of the fact that we should love our veterans we should support them we should be well i do that's why i think that some of our foreign policy needs to change so we're not sending our 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 veterans over there dying for some political agenda exactly right no benefit
1: and you may live in a small town and know mrs smith and support her and want all the best for her but still believe that the entire system needs to be torn down. And we have, you know, when he writes an article saying parents don't have the right to to change government schools, to dictate curriculum. Well, you know what? He has a point. These are government schools that are going to be promoting a government agenda and they want certain things for your children and you put them in there.
0: Yes. yes. No, you're absolutely right. You you mentioned earlier, uh, and this is this is actually pretty fundamental. Um, this is where I wish we could unpack the entire book. So later on, when he talks about the finances um, and and where the funding for government schools come from, state. And local are are primary. What he does, uh, he goes through and in the chapter he outlines is how much for defense. This is how much for Medicare. This is right. how much in dollars. So he 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 frames it in dollars. When we get to education, he switches and says only eight percent of taxes, um, you know, go to the of the budget go to actual public schools. Number one, he doesn't say what it is in dollars. So yeah. you're going to have to go and find that out for yourself. Number two, what he doesn't bring up is the fact that the federal department of education takes about seventy-five percent. I I'm, and don't quote me on that exact number, but it's about three quarters of the budget that's raised goes to the federal Department of Education, not to the schools where they support. So, of oh, course, only the eight yeah. percent. So, I, I mean, I don't know what the total is or what the percentage is, but the majority actually stays with the bureau, the bureaucracy that's that's huh. running it, not into the schools. So, no wonder there's so little federal money.
1: Well, I was interested to see, um, you know, a, another dollar figure in in his book as I was scanning through. Uh, just It was an educational bit of data that he tossed out there. If it's reliable, Um, he he mentioned some number in the 500 billions uh, for for expenses uh, and then in the 400 billions for debt for the government school system. So our government school system is going into massive debt. I had I had no idea.
0: But it's your fault. It's your fault. You right wing conservative who's trying to take away our funding. We wouldn't be in debt and and we wouldn't be struggling to pay for all these services if you would just, you know, agree to pay more taxes. I mean, that
1: old bumper (laughs) sticker about when the Air Force has to hold a bake sale to buy a B-2. (laughs) Right. Like, come on. Uh,
2: So years. Take, for example, the idea of private school vouchers. The ignominious origins of which can be traced to the backlash against court ordered desegregation when state and local governments across.
1: There it is. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I start wagging my head, and you just gotta help a press pause. Uh, But I I just hated the the fact that he tossed out ignominious and left it at that. I'm sure he's gonna go into the origins a little later. But I mean, he is just front loading this thing so hard. You can't trust someone who writes like that.
2: Right, yeah. Across the South, paid for white citizens to send their children to private schools with the exception of a brief and ill-fated push by the Reagan administration.
0: Just a pause.
2: Um, So just so everybody understands
0: the ignominy of of vouchers Mm -hmm. is racist.
1: Right. Okay. So white families across the South.
0: Yes. Just so everybody understands.
2: Vouchers had slowly faded from the conservative policy agenda. So what explained their return as a disruptive innovation? In the spring of 2019, DeVos unveiled an ambitious new school choice initiative. At the center of the effort was a proposed $5 billion fund, providing individuals and corporate donors with a dollar-for-dollar tax credit for giving to scholarship programs that help families pay for tuition at private schools, homeschooling expenses, and other education services. But while the hashtag #educate,
0: Wait a minute. Just so you're, again... Those vouchers, okay, mm-hmm. these tax credits here, or the, these vouchers, this money you're getting back, that's your money that they're giving you yeah, back. right.:
2: Education <laughs> freedom was new. The rest of DeVos' agenda was a ripped-from-the-80s retread. More than three decades earlier, her predecessor, Ronald Reagan's controversial Secretary of Education, William Bennett, also pitched tax credit scholarships, along with school vouchers for low-income parents. Even education savings accounts, which let parents spend state education dollars on an array of what DeVos terms education options
0: that's state money you're spending.
1: Right. Well, you yeah, know, there, there's so much of, of this, the, the implicit base for this is you need to play ball. Right. Right. Like, you know, we have this system set up and if you're not playing ball is because you're greedy, you're selfish. So, there are many in the black community who are fans of these vouchers, oh. right? It's not a, a cut and dry political landscape. And many who support student vouchers, black, white, and brown, uh, do so because they want more freedom for their own families. They want to be able to take more responsibility for their own families, right? Yeah. And, but it doesn't matter, right? We're not playing ball. And so particularly if you're white, you're going to have to carry the burden of that. Not playing ball means you're racist. You have racist reasons for wanting this.
0: Yes. You, you are a racist because you're not letting us spend the money the way we think it it should be spent and educating your children the way we think we should, we should be educating your children. That's what the state's saying.
1: Right. And it's more of this paternalism.
0: Oh, it is. And well, later on, here's what's really interesting. Later on, um when he tracks how it went from uh these vouchers were for uh underprivileged minority um you know low income families and then it became more br- mainstream and and was available to anybody um he mentions the number one reason that black families wanted vouchers or used vouchers was so that they could religiously educate their children gas <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty comical
2: date back to the reagan era As we began to explore other policies favored by conservative hardliners, market-based school choice, for-profit schools, virtual schooling, and the rollback of regulations, we noticed a similar pattern. Schemes that had first emerged as policy pipe dreams had been carefully stripped of their ideological underpinnings. Repackaged as new ideas and accompanied by high-minded rhetoric, they've taken on new life.
1: What these definitely are not are high-minded right right, right. Because, you know we're making sure you understand that these are schemes that are political rhetoric let's not take this you know the the proposals as they are let's not take their arguments as they are let's understand let's remember that these people are wolves at the door that's right and that if they put out something that looks good to us or seems humane
0: Secretly, it's not. It's not. Well, because they've scrubbed it of all of the ideology. Right. Sinisterly. That it, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then presented it as something brand new. <laughs>
1: oh, that, that looks <laughs> I've never good. Never heard of this before. No, it's not good. It's a poison <laughs> pill from the wolves. Oh.
2: The ideological origins of these proposals have been largely forgotten, as have the battles fought over them. Meanwhile, the true believers have been building donor networks, cultivating political alliances, developing policy infrastructure, and crafting road-ready legislation. Today's target is the system, a catch all intended to conjure up waste, red tape, and soul crushing bureaucracy. <laughs> the
1: okay, yeah, much. it's not any of yeah, those things, yeah. is it? <laughs> you don't need to press pause, man. I think, I, I think that I, he spoke for, for all of us there. Yeah, Thank the you. system. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that is what we object to.
0: Nebulous, the system. Yep. You know.
1: <laughs> it's a catch all because we're talking about something enormous. Right. You, know, so, it, you, you this book relies on the enormity of the gov- government system to translate that to universality yes. and use that universality to justify it. Well, yeah. it, if it is that universal,
0: it's a system. It's a system.
1: A- and it's full of bureaucrats.
0: If, if you're listening to this on audio, uh, we are recording this video and it's, it's going to be published somewhere. So you've got to go watch the video so you can see Joffrey react. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, man.
2: Much deeper. Striking at the core principles animating taxpayer-supported education. Indeed, the very idea of public education as a common good is depicted as an impingement on the freedom of individual students and their parents. <laughs> you can't have a one-size-fits-all system for every child's particular needs, said Mary Fallon, a former governor of Oklahoma, in a promotional video for the conservative Heritage Foundation, touting education savings accounts. We need to break down the system so each kid is treated as a unique entity, pronounced Frank Edelblue, New Hampshire's education commissioner. Lawmakers, state officials, think tanks, and advocacy groups endlessly repeat such claims about the shortcomings of the existing system, hiding their radically conservative vision of schooling beneath banally familiar language. Listen closely, though, and the sharp ideological edge is hard to miss. At a 2017 appearance before the American Legislative Exchange Council, Betsy DeVos gleefully repurposed Margaret Thatcher's oh, infamous claim that so there is no such thing as society. There is no education system, DeVos told the corporate lobby group. This is about individual parents, students, and families. The current sales pitch for pulling apart public schools even comes with an invented history. Schools, we are told, were modeled on factories, which train students to work on the assembly mm, line. Even as the U.S. economy has transformed, schools have continued to Batch process, student.
1: Okay, I, I need to know: Is he going to unpack this? Is he going to be honest enough to unpack this?
0: Not in the introduction.
2: No, in the okay. introduction.
0: In the introduction, it, it just leaves it at that. But this is a false. But later
1: on. Does he? Um, Please tell me he does. I mean, I can't. There's a certain basic level of honesty that I need.
0: Yeah, I so far I haven't seen it. I'm, oh. only, I'm only about halfway, uh, halfway through the book. So, so it's just more of I'm,
1: this: just saying something's a lie and moving on. Yes, it's Uh-oh. just you.
0: It's you're just throwing it out there, and then you know, and then moving on from that. I mean this. This is called begging the question, yes. right? So I say something that needs to be proved, but I say it as though it is a premise already proved, and then that proves my yeah.
1: These premise. ridiculous people make the claim that, and and you know Scott has put out a video uh, about this very question, and there's a lot of content out there about this very question of, it's of, documented. of schools. Yeah, it's <laughs> documented now. If he, if he wants to look at the documentation and say we've drawn a wrong conclusion and here's where we're mis- where we're mistaken right. one, two, three, then do it.
0: Yeah, and, and what this basic honesty you're talking about? He's a historian. He is he's a historian for, uh, on public education. That's his focus. Like I think he's published three books all on the public school system. Um, and
1: you know, what's really sad is when a historian has chronological blinders on yeah. when it has, you know, it, it's, it's impossible for any of us to withdraw enough from our milieu to have complete objectivity. Yeah. No one can do that, but historians are called to make the noble attempt and for him to be unable to conceive of a, a world in which the United States doesn't have this, or to be able to conceive of a time before g- the government school system was in place. Yeah is is absolutely stunning and he seems apparently unable to do it or to 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 give good reasons for people who might have done otherwise even before you know you, as a historian you should be able to say well in the early part of the 19th century they did it this way and then there was a change and here are the good things about the way they did it before our awesome final system came in, but you know, there's just, there's none of that. It's just, you can see that he cannot imagine a world without this thing that he loves.
0: Well, in later in the book, he does mention uh, going back to the 19th century and only in the context that largely for cost effectiveness, we started hiring women to teach versus men. And so it became largely a women's sort of work and seen as a devalued work. And so people underpaid teachers and go, he goes from that place, but he doesn't go back to the idea that originally, um, in, in America, these, these public schools were community based. Right. right? Um, and that's, that's well documented. So as a historian, he doesn't even offer the basic, you know, John Lukacs talks about having a basic historical consciousness about anything we talk about. And he doesn't even offer that. Right. And you know, it's, so it's, it's either, Completely, he's he's delusional on every level, and and has really shouldn't be a historian, or he's just blatantly dishonest.
1: Right, I mean, because there's a there's a basic if if you look, okay, well, uh, uh, an early nineteenth century American community, they if they're paying for the teachers themselves, obviously that's going to affect. Yep who they hire. But the main thing that affected it was how the economy was built. Yes. Right. There were fewer men available because the men had to take care of their families and take care of their family's property. It was far more likely that an educated young woman before she was married. That's right. That's usually what it was before she was married. Once she was married, she had to take care of her own family. She did. She used,
0: they left. Then that's why they wanted that certain age of a a teacher. Yeah.
1: Right. And, And to, to disagree with that, or even to say, Hey, that that happened for good reasons, but it led to this negative outcome later. Uh, But there's not even that awareness. They're simply they hired women because they were cheap, (laughs) which is completely (laughs) ignorant of how the how the economy worked in the United States when it was still agrarian.
0: This is clearly a Howard Zinn revisionist sort of approach to history. Brutal. Yeah.
2: For jobs that no longer exist. None of this is really true, of course. Schools were not modeled on factories. Of course. Student of course, it's not true. experiences in schools are up. not uniform. And most of today's jobs will, according to predictions, still exist a generation from now. But the conservatives' aim here isn't... Wait. <laughs> Did you
0: see the the future and past tense and presence all used in the same sentence? Okay. So, according to statistics, okay, the future jobs a decade from... The jobs that exist now, a decade from now, according to predictions, still exist.
1: Okay, great.
0: Did you... <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's, there's, there's no, there's no truth to the fact that we don't need the same kind of education because we're not in factories at all, because according to predictions, those jobs still exist 10 years from now because we've been there. And we
1: Yeah, know. there's this mistaken idea here that when we say that schools were modeled after factories, and in fact, were meant to produce factory workers, um, that what we're saying is you only, the, 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 what we're talking about is job training. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he is just, I, either he's, he's either being dishonest or just uh, making a mistaken assumption. But okay, when they he's say so nice. the origins are in factories, uh, what they mean is education is job training. We don't mean that. Right. What we mean is that, for example, how are Americans taught how to read? The way they're taught to read is not a method that teaches you to be free and to be a reader yourself. It is a method that teaches you to operate on a basic level to have some success out in the job market. Yes. It's not job training. We don't no. think that's what it is. No. But it, it, what it is, is, is limiting the formation so that your ceiling is to be a worker. That's right.
0: The ceiling. That's, that's a great way of putting it. It is
1: equivocation after equivocation. And to
2: offer a history lesson. Indeed, this fabricated version of the past is designed to leverage anxiety among parents about the economic prospects of their children.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. That is true. We want you to be anxious about the economic prospects of your children if they're badly educated. Pull them from the government systems. There you go.
2: (laughs) Falling wages, fear of automation, the so-called skills gap. All of this.
1: I have to, and we're we're pausing way too much, but I I, I have to have to do this. Okay. Your child is not in school in order to get into the job market. Right. Right. So he is accusing us of saying that's the limit of education, but now he's saying what we can do is provide this. Yeah. Right. Don't be, don't be afraid of the, of the job market of the skills gap. We don't think an education should come down to, how well you can use a computer or if you do do well in shop.
0: Well, surprisingly, this is one area where I slightly agree with him mm. to this in, in in a very limited sense. Oftentimes conservatives, we saw this in the, in the uh, COVID stuff, where all conservatives say, we need to get kids back to school. And, and in thinking, no, you don't understand what, <laughs> what blessing this actually could be. Right. Uh, but, but the idea is we need to get them back in school. We need to open these back up. This isn't fair, blah, 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 that, that rhetoric. Um, because there are many conservatives who do tie yes um job training education and job training and he makes that assumption there and, right. and so that is a partially true assumption um in some short-sighted conservative thinkers
1: right minds. yes well it's kind of it's kind of fun and funny how he talks about the radicals people like you and i so right, right. but then he doesn't know but how but radical he, we he lumps <laughs> exactly he doesn't know how <laughs> radical we are Uh, We want to, we want to bring the whole system down, but he gets to conveniently move back and forth between the radicals and between the vast majority of socially conservative people who are totally fine with sending their kid to their school and who think that the government should in fact provide education, right? That is actually most of the Republican party.
0: Yes. And he actually makes that observation later on in the book. He says, I don't understand why you're trying to tear down the system that you love, that you want your kids to go to so much. Right. Yeah,
1: so. Yeah, I mean, this is totally by the way, but the two party system is really lame. <laughs> yeah,
0: anyway, moving on. So
2: bad. Can be used to make the case for a radical overhaul of public education driven by a conservative agenda. The Reagan era push to implement school vouchers produced an avalanche of backlash. Democrats and even many Republicans argued that making education funding portable, even if the program were limited to low income families, would devastate public schools. Teacher's unions, which held considerable sway within the Democratic Party, warned of privatization. And the public was decidedly cool to the idea of sending taxpayer funds to private religious schools. The proposal was dead on arrival. Fast forward to the present, and Reagan's vision has not only come back to life, but its original radicalism is far harder to detect. Instead, it is rooted (laughs) in the standard school bashing (laughs) that has become commonplace on both sides of the aisle. Innovation, no matter how dubious, is touted as a panacea for the ostensible shortcomings of public education.
1: Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Innovation. Okay. All right. So, really, <laughs> what what we're talking about is people saying, "Don't throw good money after bad." Right. And and what that's just being dismissed.
0: Well, it, yes. Also, uh, I want to make sure I'm tracking with you. the The, the original argument here um, is that the reason that these vouchers were dead on arrival is because public money was being directed to private institutions. Right. Okay. So that's a good argument. And there's a sense in which I don't disagree. Just don't take the money from the people, from the private citizens in the first place to try to fund something public. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's a whole nother, another topic, but yes, then the argument goes to the idea that we're just throwing, you know, good money after bad and that this vouchers is going to, you know, this is going to solve all the problem. Um, giving these choices to, to families versus keeping them in the public school.
1: All right. Well, and, you know, every time. So, you know, one of the things I think I think he's suggesting is that when uh, proponents of the government system uh, want to solve a problem or want to introduce something new, that that it gets shut down. Right. Yep. Uh, that we're, yep. Anti-innovation. Right, yeah. anti-new stuff. We're the reactionaries, <laughs> right? And and I, uh, there is a problem from the conservative side in that they're not radical enough, right? Right. right. Uh, they 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 keep trying to save the system when really what we should be doing is is just pulling out and burning it down. But that actually takes it doesn't take a political solution. No, it takes a societal communal solution. It is.
2: This time, it's different. The tradition of trashing public education has deep roots. Claims that schools were failing and required drastic intervention date back to the 1820s, with complaints from school reformers about poor teachers, low standards, and incompetent school boards. Policy elites have long made their case for change by slamming the status quo. During the past several decades, however, the rhetorical assault on America's public schools has intensified. The 1983 publication of the A Nation at Risk report with its dire talk of a rising tide of mediocrity, is credited by scholars and policymakers as a watershed moment, ushering in a newly strident discourse about public education. Since then, a national discussion about failing schools, increasing in intensity, but abstract in focus, has shaped public understanding about the state of education in the United States. As polling has documented...
1: So just a a little comment to the side before we keep this going. So it's ridiculous that people have been complaining about this system for a long, long time. Like, yeah. well, <laughs> like and maybe that tells you something,
0: but here's, what's not totally honest. The system that they were complaining about in the 1820s is not the system that no. we have today. This is a different group of people complaining about a different set of problems, um, which would, those reformers that he's talking about complaining are the ones actually who would advocate. Those are the deweys of the mans, if you will, that would advocate for and who the installed kind of system. the system we have now? Right,
2: exactly. Documented Americans have developed more and more negative views of the nation's schools, even while continuing to feel positively about the education their own children are receiving. Ugh. Of course, even the fiercest <laughs> critics. No, actually, thought-
1: actually, there's there's a there is a super <laughs> strong grain of truth in there. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that, that there, we we are hypocritical. Yes. Right, and we we keep saying things like, "Oh, my school's fine." Right. Right. My kids. Teachers are Christians.
0: But that, you know, and, and, and maybe this, I don't want to, I don't want uh, to totally alienate our audience here, but maybe this is a call to action because there's some sloth in that. Yes. Um, when I've talked to, to families asking, why do you leave your kids in public school? Well, they have these programs that I wouldn't be able to, to handle if it wasn't for the fact that the public school had these programs for my kids. Yeah. But there is a program for your kids that God designed called you. Right. The parent.
1: Yep. And you have to prioritize. Like, okay, my kid's a football player. Well, find a private football club. The fact that the schools have co opted football may mean football's not a part of your lives.
0: Well, and okay, I am 100% for uh, gymnastic. Okay. So for, for any kind of athletic events, that is part of education. And I think it's important. Okay. But a lot of times these parents are putting stock into their kids playing football to be a part of some club so that they can get a scholarship or so that they think they're going to play pro or something. And such a fraction, a small fraction of people ever actually make it to get a scholarship, number one, and then to, to play, you know, pro or something like that. Number two, um, a lot of them in, there's injuries. That's not a good reason to, uh, to, to be deficient in that part of the education that develops the soul and virtue. That's yeah, not absolutely, a good exchange. absolutely. Right.
1: Yeah. anyway, I, 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 that's a, that's a whole rant that I, I have ready, but you know, the, the fact that sport is another thing that we just gave over to the education system yeah. is atrocious. Yeah. You know, here locally, there are some people starting up a homeschool basketball team. I played in high school on a homeschool basketball team. I'm a rugby coach for a private club and yeah. you know, most rugby across the country is actually on the European model, which is wonderful. It's not usually associated with one school, uh, which I think is great. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and so, you know, it, it may be that your kid doesn't get to play for a school, but that's fine. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And the fact is, in every aspect of education, it may be that some sacrifices have to be made, right? So, why haven't you pulled your kid from government schools? The answer very often has, is, is economic like, sure. or my household economy. Well, it may take some a complete reevaluation and revamping of your household economy to make this happen. But this is important. And you need to think of your grandkids also.
0: I've known families who threw newspapers to, to pay for home education or private education uh, or done odd jobs as a family, you know, to, to, to handle these. And we talked about this Last week or the, the or recent podcast, um, you know, for a few hundred dollars, <laughs> you know, the books and, and the ability to sit down and, and, and educate your children, it's really not that expensive. We don't need the thousands and, and thousands of dollars to do that.
1: Right. So if you've been living prudently, the, the chances are very high that you can reshape some things yeah. and, and, and make it happen. And every one of us who participates in the system uh, in one way or another promulgates it. Yep. yep. And we don't want to do that
2: found something redeemable in the broad contours of American public education. Consider, for example, the free market economist Milton Friedman, who first proposed the idea of taxpayer-funded school vouchers. Even as Friedman made the case for an approach that, as he argued, would gradually replace public schools with private ones, he still insisted on the idea of public education as a public good. The gain from the education of a child accrues not only to the child or to his parents, but other members of society.
1: I need to stop there because there's, here's another case of equivocation yeah. of using the term public education here. Yeah. And this is why it's important to say government schools here talking about Friedman and public education being a good Friedman would not have meant government schools. No. He would have meant an education of the public.
0: Right. Absolutely. And, and he's a libertarian. I mean, he's right. a libertarian uh, economist and, and very much free market. And so there's a, an, yeah, you're right. And he's completely court, misrepresenting okay.
1: yeah. Friedman by by using the word public education in the way that we commonly use it. And so we need to be aware. Well, Don't say public education. Say government schools. Yes.
0: And, and I, I keep pointing back to this, but you can read, I think it's the second chapter of Franklin's autobiography. Where where he he outlines the way that they set up, recognizing that, um, having a public education is a public good. We don't, we don't dis- disagree with that at all. And so for poor, you know, in a community where there were really poor families and, and an inability to educate, um, there was a small tax levied. Talked about this before. Small tax levied. The families that were involved were the were the, the Board of Education and right. and they they hired somebody locally. I mean, this was just it's it's like a community homeschool football league. I mean, but right. it's it's a that's it's a what community. public
1: means. Yes. Education has got to be the only I mean politicians talk about public money. Right. Right. But the word public means of the people. Right. Right.
0: But it has to go through the institution if it's going to be really public.
1: Oh. (laughs) Let's continue.
2: Wrote Friedman in his seminal 1955 article about vouchers. A stable and democratic society is impossible without widespread acceptance of some common set of values and without a minimum degree of literacy and knowledge on the part of most citizens. Likewise, the unlikely assemblage of billionaire philanthropists, charter school proponents, big city mayors, and civil rights groups, a coalition instrumental in shaping the discourse about what's wrong with public schools, remains committed to public education in some form. While education reform is a baggy, ill-defined concept that means both everything and nothing, it mostly focuses on transforming the governance structures of schools. Market advocates and their close cousins, the neoliberals, push for privately run schools with merit pay for teachers because they maintain that the private sector is a more efficient delivery mechanism. The Silicon Valley, style disruptors, want to move education online and free it from what they call friction, the myriad rules and regulations that govern schooling. Meanwhile, the successors of a long tradition of progressive reform believe that making schools more democratic can empower both teachers and students. But as we argue in the chapters that follow, The present assault on public education represents a fundamentally new threat, driven by a new kind of pressure group. Put simply, the overarching vision entails unmaking public education as an institution. An increasingly potent network of conservative state and federal elected officials, advocacy groups, and think tanks, all backed by deep-pocketed funders, has aligned behind a vision of a radical reinvention.
1: What definitely is not happening is that they represent... A certain part of the population, right, right. This is this is the elites making decisions for us. They definitely don't represent a a number of discontent families across the country. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just crazy. This rhetoric has been growing. Yes, he says. Right. But there's something fundamentally new here. And what's fundamentally new is a conspiracy of elites. What's definitely not happening is that a bunch of families are legitimately beginning to question what's happening. Right.
0: Couldn't be that. It couldn't be that.
2: (laughs) As DeVos proclaimed during her 2018 Rethink School Tour, there's no more time for tinkering around the edges. What exactly does the agenda look like? There are four main principles. One. Education is a personal good, not a collective one. It is more like private property than like a public park. Consumers should be able to shop for it.
0: Ed- Just to be clear, it is both a private good and a public good, education is. What they mean by saying it's not a public good means that it doesn't belong in the hands of the government.
1: That's right. right. Again, using the word public for for government. And you know, there, there's something fundamentally important here, which is to realize you know, th- there's there's an idea out there, it's economic as well, that. You know, when when the individual and the family take care of themselves, then the community can be more prosperous. Yep. And we're, we want to try to bless each other through that, right? What they're calling for is, is what he is calling for is centralization.
0: Yes, it right? is centralization.
1: Know, so, uh, of course, you can have. Right, exactly. It's yep. collectivism. You know, the, the idea that, you know, I start a business or I educate my own children and then by that bless my town uh, and can promote business on one hand, education on another through that completely
0: alien. And I find this really interesting um, because we've said this many times that we, we don't believe that education is job training, but when I was pastoring um, and when we had our our schools, both I frequently got calls from stores and employers asking if we had any high school students um, who uh, was looking for employment, and the reason that they said they called the churches, the reason that they said that they called the the private Christian schools, because those kids are the ones who were honest, showed up on time, they worked. They, right. So there was a, a virtue and a character that didn't exist, you know. In and I'm not saying that every public school kid is that way. I'm just simply saying that even in the economic, you know, uh, part yeah. of the world, they recognize that if if we want good help, you know, then we need to have the kind of people who are educated the way you're talking about. Right.
1: I mean, I I had that experience when I, when I I managed a, you know, a a global franchise, I I managed a store and I took over from someone whose staff was an absolute mess. Well, there was a seminary and a Baptist college in town. I hired from those guys, turned the store around. Absolutely, (laughs) And that doesn't mean that that you just hire exclusively from such fonts. uh, But those were people who were receiving an actual education. Right. Yep.
2: For education as they do any other product. Two, schools belong in the domain of the free market, not the government. They should be under the purview of personal preference and choice, not regulation and oversight. The role of the state should be as minimal as possible.
1: Right. So the, the what I what I wanted to say here was that there's an economic perspective here, and there's not at all a moral one. No. Right? most people who say the state should not be involved, they're not thinking about efficiency. They're not what they, they object on principle, right? Morally, education belongs to the family.
0: that's right. well, and, and before you this is the part where where this is another um when we say we want freedom or we'd like the free market, I mean, Kepler is a free market kind of platform for classical education. That doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. There are free-for-all education kind of platforms out there, and I won't name um, what they are, but you can teach Minecraft or whatever you want. So what a lot of families are looking for is not uh, unregulated education, but it depends on
2: who's actually regulating it, right? That's the issue, the parents versus the state. But even just
1: saying regulation, most people think the state. Yeah,
2: Three, to the extent that they are able, consumers of education should pay for it themselves. The cost of schooling should not be distributed across society, except...
0: Would you please pay for my kids' education?
2: (laughs) ...to provide a rudimentary education for those in poverty. Four, unions and other forms of collective power are...
0: uh, Wait, we've said this over and over. This is, again, another something that's very... It's documented, it's well-documented, that when a community sees that there's a need, when it's left to the community... They have always, I mean, GoFundMe is an example yes. of, of the fact that the collective community at the grassroots is always more effective than to do it at the government, you know, the federal level.
1: Right. And last week we talked, we talked about how the, the state system for education warps the entire market. Right. right. So basically all of private education right now is competing against a supposedly free service effectively it's free when you talk about competition because everybody has to pay these taxes right so you can say well it's not free well yeah no it's not but since everybody's already paying this and that's what private education has to compete against yes it's still as popular as it is despite that (laughs) and with enough of a of a sea change in vision we can actually bring the whole thing down it'll all be private
2: that'd be great i'm gonna back this up just a little bit because i the purview of personal preference and choice, not regulation and oversight. The role of the state should be as minimal as possible. 3. To the extent that they are able, consumers of education should pay for it themselves. The cost of schooling should not be distributed across society, except to provide a rudimentary education for those in poverty. 4. Unions and other forms of collective power are economically inefficient and politically problematic. They represent an ideological and practical obstacle to a radical free market agenda. Their power should be limited or challenged, and when possible, they should be prevented from forming in the first place. In state after state.
1: I just want to comment on the use of a, of a certain word in, in number three, a rudimentary education. <laughs> we would say that 99% of government schooled students are receiving. But a rudimentary education—that's already the case. If that, Uh, and
0: I'm and maybe I'm just very pessimistic, but I've watched them. I've dealt with public school kids coming in. We've been teachers for years. Yes, I see it, and not and not because the kids are bad kids, but I mean, um, it's not it's not fair. I mean, you know, and and I I I don't want to say it's not entirely their fault, but they are entered into a system told this is the normal, uh, water you swim in. So swim your best. And they, you know, man, I'm swimming around getting, you know, doing really good here. And then find out that this is not really the real fish tank.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) and you know, as, as someone who was, was raised elsewhere for a long, a long time, I, I, for years, and I I began to be homeschooled when I, when we moved to North America, but I kept running into things that blew my mind. I, I was in college, when I discovered people could get over a 4.0 GPA. Oh, like how, how does that happen? Weighted. How is it possible? Yes. Yes. Yeah, there were, there were people walking around who had, who had gotten more than a hundred percent in high school. How on earth is that possible? There's, <laughs> <laughs> and there were just so many little things like that. I mean, this is just a whole other thing, but uh, the, um, the surely you must question the system when countries with fewer resources either by choice or by force they have fewer they put fewer resources into their educational system put out graduates who are better at math better at language better at everything yeah we have to compare our elites against the average and i don't want all of this stuff like i worked with germans for years i don't want the german educational system i don't want a system that prioritizes the hard sciences over the humanities yeah. i think all of that's terrible but at least they're actually putting out a pretty respectable product. Right. <laughs> the American system does not. Right. The, the people who excel in the American system are the people who have this is where the money comes in. The people who have the money to excel past that system. Right. There's, yep. there's no actual support for the poor in our system. No, you know, no. like let's install the German system if that's what we're going to do.
0: If, if, it's, if we're, if we're going to do it, we might as well go you know, go yeah. big or go home, right? <laughs> Actually, give
1: <laughs> give a chance to some of our underprivileged yeah. that our system this absolutely just does not. Yeah, we are graduating people who are not educated, and the job
0: market knows it. At one time, this is the early 90s, this was a uh, statistic put out government statistic put out 60% of high school graduates. Were functionally illiterate. And when I was in Las Vegas, 40% of matriculating freshmen did not graduate. Yeah. That's they, they just dropped out. Absolutely wild. Yeah.
1: But you know, the exception. So when, when, you, when you meet people who were either when they were younger, they were in, in a life like that, or when you, when you meet them when they're still teenagers, uh, the, the only way they get out of that sort of loop that the government school is a part mm-hmm. of creating in their lives is when private people take interest in them. That's right. The Boys and Girls Club, yep. a church, right? That When that happens, they have a chance. Yes. Right? You hear stories about some coach teaching some kid how to that, read. Yep. That's what needs to happen. That's yeah. how broken the system is. Yeah,
2: that's good. These principles are being enacted into law and policy often behind closed doors and away from public scrutiny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some degree of secrecy or opacity is key. Because Americans have consistently supported public education over the decades.
1: That's a problem. Even in the Wild West of
2: Arizona, where the dismantling agenda has taken deep hold, the public has proved unwilling to give up the idea of locally controlled, taxpayer-supported, open-access schools. After the Republican-dominated legislature passed a law in April 2017, making all 1.1 million of Arizona's public school children eligible for private school vouchers, a parent group managed to collect more than 100,000 signatures in a matter of weeks, forcing the issue onto the ballot as a referendum measure, where it went down to overwhelming defeat. Similarly, public sympathy for striking teachers, first in red states, where deep cuts to school spending and the expansion of school choice have imperiled public schools, Then in blue cities, where the growth of charter schools has meant less money for students and teachers in traditional district schools, has demonstrated the deep support for public education that still exists.
1: So I just want to mention that we live in a town where for 20 years now, there are constant political efforts. Property taxes are going to be voted on soon to be raised yet again. The alternative educators in this town, it's an enormous number, homeschooling, private schools. I mean, our our own church will basically pay for you to go to a private school, right? They use their deacons fund for that. So there's an enormous number of kids uh, in in this area who do not go to the public schools. And the public schools are in constant crisis because of that. Right. Well, it's
0: be, it's because you know these radical right wingers won't support it and give them the right. money they need.
1: <laughs> but you know that that you know uh, that happens in in these other states as well, yeah, sure. right? And you know one of the th- uh, the the things that's being completely glossed over here is that even if a re- if a referendum does go down overwhelmingly, and we there is this problem on the right side of the aisle, we've already talked about that. Just getting it up there already means that there's a significant number of people sure. who are upset and mobilized. Yeah. That by itself deserves some address.
0: Absolutely, it does.
2: The battles to come. A wolf is lurking at the door of America's mm-hmm. public schools. Love it, prowling, biting its time, and waiting for the pack to assemble. Support for public education may be strong, but it is fragmented, variable, and voluntary. Challenges familiar to any true grassroots affair. Those seeking to dismantle the system, meanwhile, are unified, patient, and well-resourced. In the battles to come, supporters of public schools will need three kinds of knowledge, and this book is organized accordingly. In the first section, we examine the dogma that underlies the dismantling agenda. Public consideration demands a clear presentation of aims and objectives. Yet the drive to unmake public education has been masked by linguistic feints and purposeful abstraction. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, I just, I just love that.
2: Because <laughs> <This is laughs> we've
1: pointed out a few linguistic feints and uh, purposeful little abstractions.
0: going yeah. on there.
2: Designed to hide the principles at its core. In service of reasoned debate and deliberation, then, we trace these ideas from their roots, clarifying the ideology at the heart of this movement. The second part of this book looks closely at the changes already in motion. Being broadly familiar with the animating spirit and aims of this movement is one thing. Knowing how it takes form in public policy and the law is another. In order to advance public understanding of the dismantling agenda, the center section of the book examines the core policies of the dismantler's effort. In the third and final section of the book, we explore possible futures. A prospective view is essential for evaluating present policy, as policy is inherently the work of future-making. Following these efforts to their logical conclusion, we survey the landscape of a system dismantled. Our intention in writing this book...
0: I hear the third part, and I haven't got to the third part yet. sounds like it's a dystopian novel coming. If we dismantle it, here's what it's going to look like.
2: ...is not a subtle one. We are sounding an alarm. The diagnosis we issue is not in service of our own policy aims. We are not peddling a treatment. Our goal, instead, is to incite a public reckoning on behalf of the millions of families presently served by the American educational system and the many more who stand to suffer from its unmaking. After all, what does it take to frighten away a wolf? Shouting, making noise, and standing tall.
0: <laughs> the goal here isn't okay. to offer any solutions. <laughs> we, just, we just want to let you know that the wolf's at the door and we're yeah. going to show you what it looks like. Yeah, yeah so then
1: well. you can figure out how to stand tall. And that's actually that's going to be a problem because yeah. he used the the term grassroots yes and that that by itself so the the movement against government education is the grassroots movement sure it is they are the establishment so by definition like they can try to mobilize a bit but they will always be handicapped on that side right right the resistance is the one that gets to be grassroots and gets to mobilize the discontent and by definition that is why he objects to this but that is why it's multifarious sure I mean, there there are lots of people unhappy with this system for lots of reasons, <laughs> and you can go ahead and try to evaluate. What do these people have in common? What's at the core of this? That's that's great. That's legitimate. But the reason it's multifarious is precisely because it's grassroots yes. people all over the country for different reasons. And, you know, in Britain, they ran into the same things. They had to deal with the Jews, the Muslims and a few Christians who, Christians who got up off their butts in, 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 in their debates about, about government schooling, yeah. right? And so here it's, it's even broader, I would say, right? There are all these different reasons for people resisting and they are resisting. They're figuring out how to band together and it's hard for them to keep track of all of us. But what we need more of is more of us and less of this hypocrisy and ease and just accepting the stuff the government gives us. Yeah.
0: Well, clearly, there is a threat to them, right? Otherwise, the book wouldn't have been written. (laughs) But uh, as you say, um, this is the part where we do actually need to become, um, I guess, consistent might be the the right word, because there is some hypocrisy in our movement in the sense that we ideologically see the problems. But then we don't really want to act all the time because yeah. it's a little inconvenient.
1: And y'all, let, let's be radical. Let's not dislike that word. It's okay if the establishment calls us radical. Radical just means to the root. Yes. Yep. That, that's what the word means. So we want to talk about the root issues. That's what makes us radical. We want to, ch- to change things at the root because the tree is rotten. That's radical. Right. Let's, let's go ahead and be radical. Let's embrace the term. Let these others try to marginalize us, try to other us, yep. and let's just do what we do.
0: And in the meantime, we continue to raise our children, educate them well, mm-hmm. and as, you know, uh, that establishment can't continue on its, you know, at the root, it can't continue uh, because the, the flower, the fruit of that plant, you know, is is deficient, yeah. and so it can't continue can so well thanks for listening to us rant on this and i hope uh I, I would encourage you uh take a look at this book a wolf at the schoolhouse door and get an idea of what you know what we're dealing with so and yeah. good joffrey thanks
1: so long everybody